Hey everyone, just a couple announcements before we get started here. If you're not already joining us, please come out on Fridays at 12 p.m. Eastern. We're hosting Financial Feminism Fridays, where we talk about money and women and money, and uh, how we achieve gender equality and the issues that I think and barriers that prevent women from acquiring and growing wealth the same way that um, men do. And uh, we each week we host a different area, a uh, different topic area. So. Today, we just finished a session on uh, how women build wealth and gender lens investing. Next week, we're talking about career decisions and navigating them. The week after that is entrepreneurship uh, and so on. Uh, visit kindwealth.club and you can see the upcoming t- conversations we'll be hosting. And uh, you can also access recordings to previous conversations in case you missed them. Also, if you're not signed up for the podcast, for the newsletter that's associated with the podcast here, so each time I publish a podcast episode, I send a newsletter, you know, sharing the heads up that we've released it, uh, including the show notes, but also uh, links to other interesting articles I'm reading, event invitations, thought leadership, any useful or interesting resources that I think would help you get smarter about impact investing, uh, I include there. And so this week, for instance, uh, it's jam-packed, actually, uh, a lot of interesting stuff in there, but it's including an invitation to a women's uh, angel investing workshop that helps women learn the fundamentals from other women who are in venture investing, how to go about it and demystify it so that you, too, can participate in this exciting world of private, um, private market investing which, by the way, is where most of the impact investing uh, marketplace happens. It also includes a link to the new report that was funded by the Investment Readiness Program called Expanding Access to Impact Investing. That report attempts to understand the ways in which we have to move and act to unlock Canadian capital for impact investing. It's a report that I've been highly anticipating. I was honored to have contributed my thoughts um, to the report, and I just a big Congratulations goes out to the incredible uh, work done by uh, Don Bowles and the team at New Market Funds on that report. Um, I'm excited myself to dig into it this weekend, and you can find a link to the report in my newsletter uh, this week. And so you can visit impactinvesting.how to sign up uh, for the newsletter so you don't miss any of the insights. I only send you know a newsletter once, twice uh, a month type of thing, so you won't your inbox won't get flooded. And with that, let's get on to the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. When we think about impact investing, art isn't the first thing that comes to mind for many of us. Yet, investors have used art to store and grow wealth for millennia, and few of us would deny the incredible power that art possesses to change the hearts and minds of people and to motivate us into action. I mean, who among us wasn't touched deeply by Amanda Gorman's spoken word poem, The Hill We Climb, at Joe Biden's inauguration earlier this year? But few of us, artists included, Consider carefully how we might use our artistic talents to create, or our capital to finance, art as a force for social or environmental impact. 
So in this episode of the podcast, I sit down with art activist and changemaker Benjamin Von Wong. Benjamin's work lies at the intersection of fantasy and photography and combines everyday objects with shocking statistics. His work has attracted the attention of corporations like Starbucks, Dell, and Nike, and has generated over 100 million views for causes like ocean plastics, electronic waste, and fashion pollution. Most recently, he was named one of Adweek's 11 contented branded masterminds. He is also the host of the Impact Everywhere podcast. During the episode, we discuss how Benjamin chooses causes to tackle, how he conceives of his art installations, the logistics that goes into creating them, how he finances his projects, and how he thinks about impact measurement. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end, where Benjamin touches on how he thinks about the new world of NFTs, which are changing the economics for artists the world over. With that, let's get on to the podcast. Right before we get started here, just want to give a note. This uh, episode is a recording that I held with uh, Benjamin on Clubhouse. And unfortunately, before I, we started speaking, I forgot to press record. So I apologize for the choppy start to this conversation. So it's just always an interesting question to ask. What door did you enter this industry from? Because, you know, it hasn't been around long enough for anybody to have gone to school for impact investing. Interesting. I, I usually think of impact in a broader sense. So there's two directions I believe people come at impact from. They either come at it from a place of privilege or a place of necessity. Hmm. And so people that may discover impact from a place of necessity, maybe you suffered some terrible abuse, something terrible happened to you. And as a result of surviving that experience, you either, well, you either shut down or you don't want anyone to ever go through that experience again. And so you get sucked into the form of activism that you are now compelled to be a part of, or you come at it from a position of privilege, which is my story, where I went down to see whether or not I could survive as an artist and successfully climbed the corporate ladder and realized, you know what, this was not really right for me. Now I want to make the world a better place, but what do I really care about? And all these big existential questions. And that's where those are the two main ways that I found during my conversations. Have you encountered anything different, David? In terms of, just restate the, the question. In terms of just, what? Have you found in terms of how people come to oh. activism, either from a place of privilege or a place of necessity, are yeah. there any other directions people come at impact from in your experience? No, I think that's certainly a lens to look at it from. And I think that's, I think that's right. The vast majority of folks that I know personally come from it from a place of privilege. But I think even like the lens, the door, or the industry door, or the, when you're coming from a place of privilege, there's lots of different ways you can enter it. And it, it's just, I think we bring different strengths to that, to that table and different weaknesses. So being aware of not to necessarily pigeonhole people because sometimes they surprise you, but there are some common, I think, weaknesses or, or at least oversights that biases that folks who come from the traditional investment industry bring to the equation. And so it's, I just always find it interesting to hear how people came to it. So listen, I'd love to start and just how I'd love you to just give everybody a quick introduction because some of the folks in here know you and probably heard you talking a lot on Clubhouse. Others haven't. Those listening to the podcast, mine anyway, probably haven't uh, come across you. I'd like to hear in your words, how do you describe who you are and what you do and your elevator <laughs> pitch? Yeah, I struggle describing myself in words because I'm definitely more of a visual person, but let's take a stab at it. My name is Benjamin Von Wong. I'm an artist and activist, and I have created photos and videos and 
just stories that has generated over a hundred million views for different causes: fast fashion, ocean plastics, electronic waste. I'm also an advisor for different groups to help them tell their stories better. Creative advisor for the Ocean Plastic Leadership Network and Sustainable Ocean Alliance, and.、Um, Yeah, I'm just a human at the end of the day, trying to go around and make the world a better place. And so, I mean, we're, I'm gonna—I would love for you to like share your entire story. We're gonna just—I don't want to get right into that yet, but I do want to just touch on like you originally were an engineer,、um, rock mining in particular, and then all—I'm assuming you were always artistic to some degree, but then stumbled on or started to pursue art as a medium for for impact. Can you talk a little bit about a the medium and then what you're trying to achieve with with the art for impact? Yeah, started off as a hard rock mining engineer and picked up photography along the way after a girl broke up with me while I was working in a mine in Winnemucca, Nevada, and so that's how my journey into art began. I never really wanted to be an artist. I think coming from an Asian household, artist was pretty low down on the social hierarchy of expectations from the. The parental units, and and even when I decided to quit my day job in 2012, I didn't necessarily want to be an artist. I just didn't want to be an engineer anymore. Over time, though, I I slowly I, I was I, I figured out that it was possible to travel the world for free with photography, and things just kept growing. I created work that became. Bigger and more elaborate and more commercial to the point where、I、realized that just making money, being successful commercial photographer wasn't really that exciting. And then somewhere in 2016 is when I decided to stumble across Impact. And the reason I give that backstory is because although I've just followed whatever seemed to work at the time, in or what is the best tool for the job? And photography has always been a little bit of a tool for me. In the beginning, it was a tool for me to see the world. Then it became a tool. To to sustain my lifestyle of going to interesting places, attending cool conferences, meeting cool people, it became a tool by which I could actually start serving people and raising awareness for different causes. And then that tool, that photography tool, slowly started expanding, expanding horizontally into videography, into into writing. Right, you'd write blog posts, and then suddenly you were like an influencer, and now you were you were writing out press kits, and then suddenly you're a speaker because now you're speaking at conferences. And so while photography is the the top of funnel where I create a piece of art that people look at and they wonder, is it real? Is it fake? Where I can suck them into whatever message I'm trying to tell them. Underneath the photography, underneath that singular piece of art, lie many more art forms that allow people to discover the many layers of the different issues that of the story that we're trying to tell. And so, I guess when you say, I don't remember the exact question, but it was something along the lines of, what kind of art do I create? I think the art I create is it's like a systemic in a way, like there are just multiple facets to the same thing, and I think. It's so hard to hold people's attentions nowadays, and you need to entertain them by giving them as many different layers as possible in order to draw them in. And I try to do to the best of my ability in depending on the times, because today you may not want to make a YouTube video anymore. You may want to make a TikTok video in a, in a month. Who knows what it'll be? Because it's constantly changing. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Did you, as you were describing that, was did I hear you right? It sounds like you were interested in exploring. Art and travel, and it wasn't necessarily this grand master plan to drive massive social impact, and that sort of came about as you continued on that journey. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, more or less. I. So it's not that I didn't care about the world one day, and then I started caring about the world the other day. It's just that I was giving back to the world in a different way. When I quit my day job, I wanted to show that you didn't have to be stuck to a desk job that you didn't really care about, and so it was a whole like, prove that I could. Figure out a way to leave my nine to five and still thrive. That was this sort of 
narrative arc that I was stitching together. And so incidentally, that's what my talks were like. Those are what those were the pieces of content that I created were all centered around the idea that you could live your passion. And so I was giving back in that way, trying to encourage people to pursue their passions. Over time, I started realizing that it just living your passion as a surface layer wasn't deep enough because although people were inspired by my journey and they were inspired by the output of my work in and of itself wasn't actually creating any form of change. And so it felt like it, it just didn't feel like enough. I think the gap between, between what I was doing and what I felt like I could do, the power of storytelling, the power of art to move people to, to create greater transformation was just wasn't being tapped into enough. And so there was this desire around 2016 after I had attained some level of stability as an artist to go one step further and figure out, can I make my entire career about something greater than myself? Yeah, that's fascinating. And I'm interested in diving into that as we get into your story around the, we talked about this a little bit beforehand, the intersection between our, our worlds on the kind of financial sustainability and investment side of things, the money side of the equation and the art side of things. And I, I've been interested in how you navigated that along the way and really inspired by it. Given that we're here on Clubhouse, my audience has certainly heard me sharing a lot about the conversations happening here. I'm going to tie in a, a question around here. You're the first guest I've actually had on my podcast who's come from a meeting through Clubhouse. This is a really fascinating platform. How are you thinking about audio in this context? And it's like, how does that fit into the what you're doing as, an, as a social, as an activist and impact artist? What do you see as the potential here? What are you getting from Clubhouse? I'm also interested separately, because I think these might be separate questions. The, if you've ever thought of and or plan to explore audio performative Art. To answer the, la the last question first, I have no audio skills, so I can't. I did play 10, 10 years of violin at, as part of the mandatory being Asian child thing, but I was never good at, at it. I don't sing. I don't play music. I'm enamored by it, but it does just not really my art form personally. And I don't think I want it enough to, to have the desire to, to learn. That being said, Clubhouse for me, it's interesting because I've gone through many different iterations of what I thought Clubhouse could be for me in the work that I do. And I think... One thing that has been true of my experience in Clubhouse and very true of life in general is that if you do something just because you want it to be popular, uh, you're just going to be disappointed. If, I, if we spent this conversation looking at how many people joined this room to decide whether or not we had a great conversation and learned anything, we would be pretty disappointed because the numbers relative to some of the big rooms that are being hosted are a, a totally flawed metric for depth and learning and connection and, and all the other things that make us human. And so for me, I think first and foremost, what I hope Clubhouse can be is a place where I can learn and grow as an individual. I want to learn so I can listen silently in, in, in the back room and I can invite serendipity by participating in rooms or raising my hand in a space where I would not normally be a part of. I can dive into conversations that I wouldn't normally listen to or discover on my own. And I think that's on the listening side, what I see really exciting for Clubhouse. On the speaking side, more than anything else, besides the obvious like discovery and building of community and everything like that, I think there's an opportunity to develop your skills as a communicator. Like, I don't know about you, but I have felt an improved ability to say things more concisely in, in a shorter <laughs> amount of time and to be very conscious about the amount of time and space that you take when you are speaking up inside of, of a room. And I think that those sort of soft skills, the ones that you don't get any kudos or metrics for are actually the most more valuable ones. 
Because at the end of the day, if how we communicate with the world is the way we communicate our ideas, if we can get better at communicating that in a more succinct and clear package more consistently, and we can weave things more dynamically, more, you know, that to me is something that's timeless and that can never be taken away from you, regardless of what happens to Clubhouse. I always say that at the end of the day, in 10 years, what is Clubhouse going to be? Who knows? But let's say I have 100,000 followers or a million followers by that point. Uh, and then what? And, and I've, I've gone through this experience where I have almost half a million followers on Facebook that I never use anymore. I almost never post. And it, even if I did post, it doesn't reach anyone anymore because we're beholden to what the platforms decide to do or don't do. And I think build something for the sake of building something is not what I see the benefit of Clubhouse for. <laughs> and I, I often invite people that if they hear someone that they thought was interesting or inspiring to make sure to export that relationship off of Clubhouse, deepen that relationship, reach out to someone. Because at the end of the day, all that you have to show for anything on any platform are the human relationships that you've built with them. Yeah, I love that. I have, I decidedly feel like a worse speaker on Clubhouse because I'm always so conscious of the, self-conscious of the time and space that I'm taking that I'm, I'm already a fast speaker and then find myself rushing further. But it is good practice. And I think it's, you know, a healthy process to go through. And I'm probably just going to take longer to improve than you have. But uh, no, they say it's a thousand hours. And I've been on Clubhouse since June of last year. So I've been on forever. And most of my time was actually spent silent. So I would actually attribute a combination of the podcast as well as Clubhouse to improve my communication skills. Yeah. Oh, and editing yourself copiously. <laughs> There's nothing <laughs> There's no better <laughs> antidote than having to like get rid of all the ums, ahs, you knows, and stutters over and over again that you can, I'm not, I'm still not perfect by far, but I can catch myself a little bit better. Yeah. That's such a great point of the post-production process of the podcast is the bane of my existence. So yeah, that's a great motivator. I also just think it's really fascinating aside from our, each individual's improve the like clubhouse's bringing people worlds like slamming them back together in a way to, in a in a medium to have like intimate conversations at scale in a society where we've like increasingly drifted from one another like physically and obviously our communication with one another where we live in separate houses and we get busy lives and it's just we don't we don't communicate and we don't interact with one another anywhere near the same as I think we used to and the same that happens in communities and in, in other parts of the world. I think about for me, my experiences in large parts of sub-Saharan Africa, there's just such a radically different sense of community there. And here we have a technology that now groups of people who just don't talk to one another have the ability to listen to one another and talk to one another. And that comes with the good and the bad. And we both were in a room not too long ago where we saw some of the challenges that, 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 that come with that. And it's forcing us to, I think there'll be painful process there, but I think it's really healthy that we can engage with one another in, in deep and meaningful conversations. So that, that kind of aspect of this really appeals to me. I think what's cool about it is that ultimately Clubhouse is a listening. Even in this room here, there's two of us speaking and there's a bunch of people listening and only one person can speak at the same time. And so it's an invitation to listen. And we all know that when we listen more than we speak, that's when we are learning. And so by deep, by its very nature, by its very design as a place that focuses on listening, I think it allows growth. And then I think the other thing that it brings, it introduces into our lives is, the, especially within a digital environment that is often faceless and nameless, is the introduction of context to, to conversations that, are, that often lack it, right? You put like a tweet that has 180 characters or whatever, 240 characters, 
you're removing a lot of the context from the opinion and the thought. And Clubhouse allows you, especially in its interactive nature, to reintroduce context into a conversation. So even if someone joins late and they missed out on something, they can still just by listening or by even asking a question or by taking the conversation off in the other direction, they can gain context. And it's through that context that we actually gain our humanity, like the complexity of the human experience, the black and the grays within the black and the white that are so nuanced where all the richness and the wealth and the growth actually lies. Yeah, I, I love that. At the risk of uh, digressing too much into a clubhouse uh, conversation, I, can you, would you do me the 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 honor and uh, of sharing your story? I know you've talked about it a lot. I've heard it before. But I, I really do think your story is really fascinating and incredible. I'm also cognizant of, I'd love to be able to point people who are listening right now or listening to the podcast afterwards to some of the visuals from some of your installations. Do you, is like through your website, can I think like folks can see some of those visuals? Is that like a good place for if anybody's listening and wants to see any of your art aside from the profile picture you have up right now? (laughs) I think the best way to go stalk me is just to Google my name. You can just Google Von Wong. And then if you want to see it on Instagram, you can go look for an Instagram experience. If you want to go get a YouTube experience, you can go get a YouTube experience. And if you want an auditory experience, you go find an auditory platform. And so it's one of the beauties of being prolific online is that ultimately it doesn't matter how people stumble across me, which the problem with my story is that it's long. And so it's about trying to figure out which part, which parts do you think would be most relevant to focus on? Uh, and I'm totally happy to dive into any part of it. But and I, I wonder what, how people do this as they get older. Like if I was 75 I years old and someone said, tell me your story, what would you say? <laughs> yeah, I think for I think for probably the listeners of both of our podcasts, I, I think as much the sort of getting started as and that like what choices you made along the way. And the steps that you took, I always find it, people sometimes gloss over that stuff. And I'm left with a question. Yeah, but wait, there, there, like that was a big gap between this step and that step. And I have no idea how one would go about going from step one to step two there. And there's, I think it's interesting um, and motivating for people to hear some of that. So I, I would say, um, if you're going to make some editorial choices, maybe you don't have to talk about every kind of installation you've done. And but give examples of, of some of them, favor maybe one or two or, or three examples rather than all of them, but describe some of the detail that went into how you actually pulled one of those off. And that's what I'm usually left in awe of is just the amount of time, effort and energy and the engagement of community that that goes into one of your installations. And I, I it blows my mind that you're able to accomplish that. I, I don't have that ability. And that's interesting. Let me start with, why don't I just give an installation as an example, and I'll break apart the different layers and work in reverse, which is something I've never done before. Sure, (laughs) yeah, let's experiment. Yeah, one of my latest campaigns involved creating an art installation out of 168,000 plastic straws that were collected over nine months in Vietnam. And we basically collected, cleaned, sorted, organized all these straws into two parting Two, two parting waves in the same way that you might have the parting of the sea by Moses. So we called it the parting of the plastic sea. And in the center, we had different figures modeling inside of the image. And, uh, and so this was a campaign that we created over the course of uh, a, a number of months. The actual build of the project took about one month. The photos took about two days. And we recorded a video over the course of that entire time period. And we launched it the same day we launched the art installation. And so within a campaign that I try to create, there are numerous 
layers to them, right? So first and foremost, the only core skill I have is photography. That's what I know how to do. And so it's ironic that the part that I know the most how to do and what I'm most known for is the part that takes the least amount of time, energy, and effort because I've already acquired sort of the hard foundational skills in order to create that. And it's such a small part of my work these days that when I went to Vietnam, I didn't bring any lighting. And I just figured that whichever, whatever gear volunteers had there, I would just use that as the equipment that I would use for this photo shoot. And that piece of the puzzle came from the understanding that the fancier the equipment you have, the more inaccessible your work is to others, because it feels like you solve the problem with money. Whereas I think solving the problems with community is a greater way to create relationships. And then if you start like peeling that down, so we, we have a photo shoot. So in order for me to take something, take a photograph of something, you need something interesting to take a picture of. And in my case, I started off photography being completely enamored by special effects because when you do something that gets people curious or wondering, what am I looking at? Is it real? Is it fake? How was it done? It's like a magician revealing its trick. It's like after a magician performs a trick and they say, wait, let me show you how it was done. Would you choose that moment to go to the bathroom? No, you would stick around and you'd stay no matter how badly you had to pee. And, and I think it's the same idea with art. If you want people to pay attention to something that you have to say, you have to be able to captivate them and you have to hold their attention in some way, shape or form. And for me, that starts with creating something that gets people to, to ask a question because then you're leading with curiosity. And once you lead with curiosity, then they fall into that rabbit hole where you get the chance to say what you did, how you did it, why you did it. And so it, early in my career, it was all about special effects. Over time, it moved on to like just traveling to cool locations, building great costumes. And then it became about building my own little micro sets. And then I just started wondering, I keep building these things. Like my stuff keeps growing. And at the end of the day, I spend days, months, days, weeks, or months building up something only to have it torn down. What if I could create an art installation that anyone else could dive into anyone else could shoot because now you're open sourcing your photography and, and and that's how i landed upon this layer of creating art installations now if you go like another layer i don't know if this is a layer deeper or layer like laterally i'd be doing these projects and the reason people would want to have conversations with me was because they would want to know how was it done if you want people to talk about what you're doing you need to give them an easy way to talk about it and oftentimes if you're doing something the best thing they can do is share a link, right? And, and so if you want them to share a link to something, why not, why not make it a link to a video of how something was created? And so I had that layer of a video where I would always have a document filmmaker, whether it was paid, unpaid, sometimes it was a student, sometimes it was someone else. Sometimes I had to edit the videos that other people shot. There's always this element of telling a story of how something was created. And the lesson in that that I think is really interesting is it's that if you tell people how you do something and you break it down in a way that feels understandable, regardless of where people are coming at it from, then you're effectively showing them how to do something themselves. So you are positioning yourself as a guide rather than a hero. And you don't want to position yourself as a hero because if you say, look at me, look at what I did, look at how awesome I am, then that is not relatable, right? There's no space for the other person to step into those shoes. But if you step in, as the guide, then you give everyone the ability to also potentially become that hero or that activist or that whatever it, or whatever it may be, they can fill these shoes. You're just giving them the construct of it. And so now we have video, we have art installation, we have photography, but all this still has to be packaged in a way that journalists will write about it, right? Because ultimately at the end of the day, you want someone to like 
to push this out into their network. There's some amazing books on this, on how things spread. Contagious by Jonah Berger is one of them. And, it, and, and, and we often think of virality as, I guess, COVID, where one leads to two, two leads to four, four leads to 16, and so on and so forth, this exponential growth curve. But in reality, when you look at how information spreads on the web, it actually, it's very much nodal. You need to figure out where these like nodes or these hubs of viral growth actually happen. And so it's very much less how much the, how many times someone shares something because most things don't share beyond one or two connections, like one or two bounces of the bouncy ball. It's very much more about which nodes are the most powerful. And the only way you get these powerful nodes to share either through network connections or packaging things in a way that people are used to seeing. And so for me, a lot of my strategy revolved around reaching out to not influencers, but news networks. And, and so what that meant was the importance of building out campaigns that had really compelling titles that were really easy to talk about because those titles created really compelling headlines. And a good headline means someone's going to open your email, someone's going to share your post. It, it, it means so many different things. And oftentimes journalists aren't going to take the time, energy, and effort to figure out how to market your story for you. It's up to you to help make that possible. And so then they became this entire like press outreach component of my projects that were built in. And then interwoven in this mess of things was like an entire chapter of my life where I was an, an influencer, quote unquote, where I had followers on Instagram, I had followers on Facebook, I could post something online and then have helpers come and help me. Today, I would say my reach as an influencer has greatly diminished, uh, primarily because the platforms have changed the rules. Before it used to be more about whether or not you were creating something that was truly spectacular. Today, it's about creating something that is consistent on a schedule and I guess repeatable like over and over again. Like people sign up to you as if, as if you were a reality TV show and that's just something that I'm not really interested in. And so ultimately, I think those are a couple of the, the pieces that I've built into the projects that I've created. And so now every single project I do has all of these layers to them and increasingly they, be, they take longer and longer to create. And so I do maybe one to two projects a year if I'm lucky. And then the rest of the time is spent just talking to people, connecting with them, understanding the problem, figuring out how art can serve as a solution. And so that would be the story a little bit in reverse. It's probably more confusing this way. No, I don't think it gives the, the, the same timeline, but it, it's still uh, interesting and I'm happy to, to engage it this way. So just to give the maybe a bit of the summary, and I think you touched on it already, you know, you're a rock mining engineer who essentially quit his job and then started to travel and do photography and you were like running workshops and things like that just to earn some income and pay the bills and then started to, it sounds like things organically grew from there, in, engaging in projects and taking on things that you were interested in. And what was your first, can you remind me, what was your first real kind of activist piece of art in that project? I think, I'm trying to think, because the first piece of active, first piece of activism So I think if we take environmental activism as a benchmark, that one's really easy for me to target. So that would be in 2016, I had quit, I, I decided to not create any projects that didn't have social impact attached to it. And, and so I was desperately looking for something to do. And I didn't really care. Like I didn't want to be an environmental activist. I just wanted to do something good with my art and my my girlfriend at the time, at the time, was still my same girlfriend, came up with the idea of using storms as a metaphor for climate change, primarily because she was looking for an excuse to go chase storms, which I thought was a wonderful idea, but I didn't want to go through the time, energy, and effort of organizing a project unless we actually had some kind of impact associated to it. I thought about it, 
the storms as a metaphor for climate change is a really interesting premise. And then we just decided to give it a shot. So we found a storm chaser and uh, went chasing storms for two weeks. And we just had these people doing ordinary everyday activities from sitting on a toilet to doing their laundry to barbecuing food. And, and behind them, there were these massive supercells behind them. And that was that would be the, the big narrative that we, we tried stitching together. And interestingly, I don't think this series was actually my best work, but it was the first time that I saw that art had a role to play within highlighting sort of invisible issues that, that people couldn't really understand. And so this intersection of fantasy and impact was something that was really interesting to me. And of course, when you tell a story like this in such a unique way, there are all sorts of people you get good and bad from it, but ultimately you're tackling a topic in a way that hasn't been done before. And what that means is you're, no, you're not really preaching to the choir anymore. You have the opportunity to speak to a completely different audience. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I 100%. You talk about the abusing art as an ability to shock people, create a sense of awe and curiosity. And I, I love the idea of the fantasy and impact coming together. If you look, just looking at your work, you can see it through quite a number of your pieces. It's just a beautiful, fantastic, no other better way to describe it than fantastical imagery. So I've got a bunch of questions, and so I'm stumbling here a little bit because I'm just trying to think about the order in which to to address them. Maybe just staying on the issue of some of your, your pieces, What do you have a favorite that you've done, something that you feel like that's your sort of best work that you've done? Yeah, the favorite art piece question is interesting. So I see art as a tool. Uh, and, and effectively, if, if art is a tool to communicate an idea, then what defines a piece of art as more successful or less successful is its ability to influence discourse or narrative, right? Which pieces of art create the, the deepest amount of impact? And if I look at my work, there's only one, one project that, that does that, and that's when I put a mermaid on 10,000 plastic bottles. And I think it's one of the only photos that I've created that requires no words in order to describe what the message is, because you see this sort of dying mermaid on 10,000 plastic bottles, and you understand instantly that this is something to do with the oceans. And it's funny that it takes a fictional character for us to really understand the magnitude of the problem. And a lot of the other work that I create often requires a single sentence. So if I, I created a series for Dell, and one piece was showcasing laptops that were or, or arranged in a solar panel, uh, like solar panels in a spiral, like the opening scene of Blade Runner. And that project still requires like, oh, every minute, every 60 seconds, 142,000 computers are thrown away or discarded instead of recycled. And, and so like statistics like that really help to hone things in. Even with my straw installations, the, the one line to explain the context is, was it's just one straw said 8 billion people. And then with that one sentence, you can really understand the message. And then suddenly all the pieces click into place. But I think the pinnacle of great work and something I personally aspire to is the ability to create pieces of work that require no words in order, to, in order for you to understand what they mean. Uh, and it's something that I am working towards doing as I slowly create less and less pieces of work. The question becomes, how can I create work that is more and more symbolic? And you want to create these symbols because they're timeless in that way. For so long as the issue remain like for, for so long as the problem remains an issue and that people are going to be looking for ways to communicate the challenges that we face, they're going to continuously look for 
the visual representations, and this is true, I think this is true of music too, the, or just any representation of the values that something espouses. And so when you're trying to capture a feeling and redistribute a feeling, you're going to be searching for things like this. And if you can create work like that, I think you create work that is essentially timeless and that will survive the test of time. And what about, that's a really interesting to me, the point about pieces that don't require words to communicate the message. Is there, what is it about the words? Is it, it just doesn't require them and so it just allows it to transmit faster? Or do you think there's something about the words that potentially dilute or potentially confuse the, the you have the potential to confuse or, or change the message? No, I just think it's more just a, a personal judge of the quality of the image, right? If the image is so simple that you understand it without it requiring words, then that to me means that you created the image in a way that was clear enough to people that suddenly someone who doesn't even speak the same language as you can understand. And I think there's power in that. And so that's what I aspire to create. I think there's tremendous power in words. And and some of the best collaborations I've experienced were with spoken word artists who come in and, and lend their words to my work. And then it becomes this sort of double whammy. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive at all. However, as an as a visual artist, I think you really want to aspire to create work that can stand on its own so well that it doesn't even require words is what I think is like the the pinnacle of the kind of work that I can create. And who knows, this might change in 10 years or whatever. Opinion, opinions change all the time. Yeah, I was going to say, because I think even just the, I think you're very good with words. You talked about your learning in terms of packaging and writing headlines that were catchy and that allowed it to people understand it quickly that's a that's a a skill or and or a talent that you either you've built or you innately have and so anyway it was interesting to me to hear you talk about that do you sorry i want to just ask about that as somebody who writes a lot and often writes uh (laughs) is very verbose being succinct is one of my challenges is this something that you've practiced like how did you get better at packaging your work i think i'm it's because I'm a terrible writer. <laughs> so I don't just literally don't have your problem. Uh, it takes me s- tremendous effort to, to write anything half decent. That being said, I, I do think there's a lot of power to speaking simply and speaking in a way that people can understand and speaking with words that are not complex because now they can reroute their cognitive ability that would have been spent trying to understand prose into just understanding the essence of what you're trying to get at and why you're trying to get at it. I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from someone like Donald Trump, who basically uses the vocabulary of a four-year-old, which is is wonderful. He repeats statements and words all the time, but it's strategic because that, that way he can appeal to the, the lowest denominator and and no one is, is stuck misunderstanding any kind of words. Now, is he accurate? Not really, but is he able to galvanize people? Yes, he is. And so I think ultimately art is like a dance. Like I cannot prescribe my art onto anyone. Someone who isn't doesn't like it is not going to like it anymore after I try to talk for an hour to them about it. But what I what I can try to do is try to expose as many people as possible to it. And in order to expose people to the art, in order to create that sense of curiosity uh, so that they can dive a little bit deeper into whichever rabbit hole I'm attempting to direct them into, it requires access, making that information accessible. And so maybe a way to think about it for you, David, is just to think about it in tears. Like you can go as deep as you want, as verbose as you want, but 
don't do it in a way that alienates people who are just discovering that content for the first time. And when I look at your website, I don't, I was like checking out Kind Wealth and so forth. I, I feel like you do a very good job of, of doing that. And I don't know how much backend effort goes into it, but it's, it's really, I, I just think of, I just think of everything as a journey. It's a story and you never know at which point people are going to discover you. And as long as you can always ensure that all these different entry points that people have into the work that you're doing are, are designed in layers and that none of them scare people away, that's the, what I try to do with my work. Yeah, that's beautiful. So let's talk a little bit about, you've mentioned a couple times some different things. Are you measuring the quality of your piece or the how satisfied you are with it around how simple it is for people to understand and how effectively it communicates the message? You mentioned a number of views. How do you think about when you look at your work, the impact that it is having and how you judge that for yourself? Are there metrics that you're looking at? We you, we even talked about some of the dangerous problems, some of the dangerous metrics people use with Clubhouse and other social media, right? Where it's like followers and clicks and likes and all that. And there's all sorts of other things that go unmeasured, which are the, the real value lies in. Yeah. Measuring the impact of my art is like literally the reason, it was one of the big reasons I started the podcast in that I thought that if I could just talk to enough people and ask them, how they were measuring the impact of whatever it is they were doing that I could eventually figure out how I could better measure the impact of art. And I think about 20 episodes in, so 20 interviews in, I started to realize, you know what, I think I'm, I might be asking the wrong question. If I, if I asked, if I was trying to measure how much, like how much someone loved someone else based on a bunch of like key performance indicators, whether it was eye contact or dollars spent on spouse or something along those lines, like you would, you might be able to measure something, but you would never really get down to the essence of what it is you were, what was the quality and the essence of love. And so I, I just felt so. So that being said, I did discover some interesting things. And so I think within art and impact, there are different ways that it can manifest itself. So there's there's process and then there's out, output. And so you can have impact on any one of those two, two categories, right? The process of creating art, let's say you take PTSD people and you're teaching them how to weld and the act of them coming together and sharing a, a, a space of com camaraderie, it doesn't actually matter what they create. Like this process of co-creating together is where the impact lies. And then there's the output, which is where I lie a lot of my work in, which is where I, I create something and, and I hope that the, the output of that creates an impact in people. Overall, though, I haven't been able to like besides the obvious of yeah there is impact and, and you can see it you get all the qualitative feedback from it you hear stories from it you people whose lives have changed as a result of seeing the work that you've created like all those are there are they measurable i don't think so not really with the tools that we currently have at least not in a way that is cost effective right you could do these longitudinal qualitative surveys for the work that you're creating but then you're wasting all this time and energy and effort that you could be spent creating new and better pieces of work. And so it just doesn't, I don't think it really makes sense to delve too deeply on that question and to focus a lot more on just making sure to create work that is, that, that you're constantly interrogating and seeking to improve and, and do better on. The only metrics I have are the same metrics that everyone else has, which is like number of views, number of press mentions, and so on and so forth. And they're important but I find it really ironic that let's take my clubhouse bio, for example, and you look at that. And if, if that was all that people saw of my work and, and, and the only impact that they felt, it would be like, I think it would be pretty diminutive. I think of my Wikipedia profile and I look at it and I'm like, wow, if this is all that people remember of me when I pass, it would be pretty, pretty sad because there's so much more to us than these like little indicators of accomplishment that, that, that we do in a way that, I don't know, an award just 
really doesn't capture, despite the amount of importance we put on it. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I talk about in the impact investment space a lot, the impact measurement and management, I think, is a wonderful process. And I think the process itself is more valuable than the output from that process in a lot of cases. Particularly, I think what we are trying to quantify often doesn't really as accurately reflect what we think it does. And oftentimes it falls just so shy and short of what we're actually measuring is just a fraction of the overall impact that's actually happening and sometimes leads us just to to chase the wrong to chase the wrong activities because we're going to gravitate to the things then that can be measured the really trying to de-emphasize the numbers that you're coming out with on the impact side and look at them and let's try to get better and we will discover techniques to quantify things in a way that that gives us a, a better and better picture but we're just it, it's it seems to me especially on the social side of things it's just when you're dealing with people, we're so complex and there's just so much that can't be quantified. So I love the way that you're thinking about that. And I, I think we'd all do better. I think sometimes in the investment space, we get a little too caught up in the, the numbers. Like I spent a, a good percentage of my career in the investment research industry. And there was this big distinction all the time between quantitative research and or, or data and qualitative. And the qualitative always had this sort of air of, oh, let's just qualitative. So it's less reliable, less trustworthy. It's And it almost took a second place to quantitative data, which everybody would hold up in high regard. And that always seemed to me funny because even the quantitative is just laced with qualitative and subjective decisions that get made about what we're measuring, how we're measuring it, and how we're quantifying it that people don't recognize when they. it just seems, oh, the data is the data. It's numbers. These are hard facts. It belies the, the subjectivity involved in, in, in measuring it. But I think, yeah, I think what you just said earlier was super valuable. That, that's the key. It's that the process of pursuing, I, I don't know if you're using like the gin or one of these impact measurement systems or iris, like the process of asking yourself all these hard questions of, am I doing the right thing? Am I thinking about diversity on my board? Am I thinking about long-term resiliency? And even with something like COVID, we're starting to see a lot of these questions starting to be, to be asked. What is the value of community? What is the value of resiliency? How are we measuring these things? The process of asking those questions is where the impact lies because that's where change starts. But the minute you start pursuing these numbers just to say, oh, I have more, I now have more women on my board because they just had to hit a number, then they're actually not embodying the essence of, wait, but why were we actually trying to get more women on the board? What was, what kind of diversity were we actually trying to introduce and why was it something that was important? Was it just a diversity of gender Was it, or was it a diversity of opinion? And if it was diversity of opinion, how are we making sure that diversity is given the opportunity to shine? And so this whole process that you speak about is where, where, where the value truly lies, but it isn't measured. And so my hope over time is that these kind of things become more apparent as we start developing the grammar and poetry of impact better. And we start to understand what we're actually looking for. I look at something like the sustainable development goals, like the 17 different SDGs. And then you have companies that are cherry picking which ones they want to support and which ones they don't want to support. That's not how the world works, though. We live in a system and, and at the end of the day, it's about seeing, are you having a net positive on the world? And you have to take into account all the damage and the negative that you are doing. Just by existing on this planet, we are consuming, um, we're consuming resources, right? You can't ignore the fact that we're consuming resources and just conveniently look to all, all, all the, the beautiful things that we're doing. And that sort of, that delicate balance and those hard questions are, are truly where the value lies. And when we live in a capitalism 
capitalist structure where at the end of the day, like nonprofits spend half of their year trying to chase after the grant so that they can continue doing the work for the next half of the year, <laughs> you can go, there's a problem here. So I agree with you and I agree with you. And in my world, what that generally looks like is, yes, I need to like think of the numbers and I need to think of the awards and I need to think of how I'm going to sell myself so that I can continue doing the work that I do. But when it comes to actually creating the art, actually creating things that resonate with people, I spend a lot more time just thinking about what am I trying to say? And is it going to work? And if it works, in the event of success, in the event that something I create resonates with the entire world, what do I want them to do? <laughs> and, mm. and, and funnily enough, I think most people don't ask that final question often enough so that even when they do attain success, they're blindsided by it. And I think that's just really funny. Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. I just want to ask you on the coming back to this, not necessarily the process of impact or measuring the impact, but the process of actually delivering your creating your art. On average, and it probably varies dramatically from one to another, but in your big, let's talk about your kind of biggest and most involved project. How many people are you engaging through that process, whether it's volunteers or people you're paying or whatever the case is? Like it, a lot of it involves volunteers who are coming together. I think about the plastic straws and gathering plastic bottles for the various installations you've done that require that. And that seems to me, I just point out where I'm going with it is like just in in that process, you're engaging a whole bunch of people that are leaving that experience probably pretty profoundly impacted by it. Yeah, that's definitely the hope. I, I just love working with volunteers. And I think it comes from a world in which photography is often very exclusionary. Traditionally, you might have a photo shoot and then you have your model, your makeup artist, your lighting person, and it's going to be in a studio and it's going to be a closed environment and no one can come and play. No one can come and experience it. And so even when I was doing photography, it was always very inclusionary. It was like, oh, who wants to come along? Who wants to tag along? You can hold the light. You can help us carry some suitcases, whatever. Just don't be disruptive or don't shoot over my shoulder because that's just like weird because then they go and they post it as their own photo in their portfolio and just wait, but you didn't do anything. You just shot over my shoulder. Anyways, that's a whole nother topic. But this idea of making sure people can come in and experience something on their own is something that I've just found like really valuable. And when I started doing these activism projects commercially, I still fight for the right to, to, to be able to have volunteers and to give them the opportunity to come on set because I don't think there's anything that really replaces the feeling of, of being surrounded by what is essentially a, a mountain load of trash. Right now I'm in, in Montreal and I'm in the process of building a project and I have no idea how many people are going to ultimately come and help me out. I don't really take the time to count it, but I'm basically building a giant levitating plastic tap that is ideally going to be somewhere between 20 to 30 feet tall. And I want to capture, you know, those levitating taps that um, you see with fountains. I think it's pretty common, but in the plastics world, we talk about the importance of closing the plastic tap. And so it's taking a saying and giving it a visual. And I want to build this tap and I want to transport it to a landfill. And I want to transport it to the middle of a city center. And I want to transport it to ideally a container park. And, and right now, like, I have no idea how I'm going to create any of these things. I'm in the process of trying to figure out. Now I have an idea. Now I need to bring it to the stage of execution. But to bring it to stage of execution, I'm going to need a lot of people to help me out on, these, on, on this project, whether it's on the shoot itself, whether it's preparing all the plastics, whether it's even just donating their plastic. And that just gives me, I actually, I need people and they need, and, and, and people are looking to be involved. And so I see it as this, like, really fun way of not only giving people the chance to participate in something that is bigger that they wouldn't normally be able to do but it's i guess it's an exchange of energy it's one in which everyone can help everyone else and i think that's just how it's the world that i want to live in and it's, it's an opportunity to do that in the projects that i create and so there's there's a desire for people to get in, involved 
more often than not, people who don't care about the cause don't really get involved. But whatever you can do to, I think, introduce people to a new idea and give them uh, a new way to participate, a way to make a difference, I think is always really valuable. Yeah. I, I don't know if I answered. Was, yeah, was that, no, that was an answer to the question. A hundred percent. And I think it strikes me. I'm cool. curious just to follow up on that, that the, like your medium often because it's visual and can be seen digitally, you, you know, people are experiencing it without you participating in their reaction. And so getting to work with individuals, volunteers through the process of creating it, I, I have to imagine is valuable for understanding what, what, is effective with people is that do you find that or the one lesson that i guess i i I learned from working with volunteers is that everybody is there because of some internal self-motivated reason so like people are fundamentally selfish at least that's what i believe i like i create work to make the world a better place because i feel like that's the way to lead a good life it is where i find meaning purpose and value and so i find it really interesting to ask people why they're coming to help what drives them to be a part of something and you get to learn the spectrum on which people reside in in terms of why they're interested in in something and and how deep their connection is and and i think what that tells me or what that invites me to do is to make sure that I take the time to ask people like why I think why they're getting involved. It, it's just, if you can understand what, what drives people and what motivates them in order to do, to do anything, to take any, action, then you have a far greater chance of having more helpers when it comes down to it. And when you have more helpers and you can do more things and it, in some ways, it's the essence of leadership, right? Leadership is not prescriptive. You don't tell people to be more focused. You have to inspire them to to want to be more focused themselves. It has to come. It has to come from within. And some people do that through example. Some some people do that through inspiration. Some people do that through method. And I think it's similar here when it comes to the creation of art. It's all about taking the time to understand the people with with whom you're working and figuring out what drives them in order to keep them motivated and encouraged to come back the next day to continue working on the thing. And then what I find really fun is that at the end of the day, when you decide to launch the project and you now have all these advocates that have been a part of co-creating this thing with you, it's no longer like your singular project, but like our project as a community that we're putting out into the world in order to create something valuable. And it's one of the reasons why I, I, I don't sell my art. My art is available at cost on my website. I will charge companies who are trying to license the work, but I don't sell my art because I think that's unfair to everyone who's participated, which is a terrible business model. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So that, and that does segue nicely into my final kind of area that I wanted to chat about. And I I do want to leave an opportunity for, for folks to, to join the, the conversation with questions. Talk a little bit about the financial sustainability side of things. And some of your art has been commissioned. I think some of it you funded yourself, I, I, as I understand it. How do you think about that? And then how do you navigate? I, I'm familiar with kind of your story around Nike and the work you did there and the questions you had for them and the kind of how you navigated things. But do you talk a little bit about that process, about how money... Uh, is a part of the equation and how you navigate it. Yeah, we all need money to live. And I think I realized earlier on in my career that you could either attempt to make a living by doing lots of small little projects, like lots of portraits or lots of weddings or something along those lines. And then you can do the math, right? You can say, oh, I charge $100 per photo shoot. Every year I want to make, I don't know, $50,000. So I need to do this many photo shoots. Uh, and I realized 
that if I could do something really, if I could focus on creating work that was really big and really different and really unique, that at the end of the day, maybe I could do the reverse and I could create one or two projects a year that were really big and expensive where I could get paid thirty, forty thousand dollars per project and, and and then do fewer of them. And so this sort of high frequency, low impact versus low inf- low frequency, high impact was the model that I stumbled upon when I started getting into commercial photography. It was something that definitely took a while to go from idea into execution, meaning like this is, it was something that I knew I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to get there. And it was only just through sheer persistence of doing weird, crazy things over and over again between tying models underwater and shipwreck to dangling people off the edge of rooftops that eventually my name became synonymous with the person who does photos that nobody else really does, where I was able to get commissioned to do projects that nobody else was really doing. Just in time for me to decide to be an activist <laughs> and, uh, and start turning down all commercial projects. But, but I think between speaking engagements, teaching, uh, and sponsorships in my earlier career, no longer anymore, I was able to earn just enough to keep creating. And I think being an artist is very much similar to trying to survive in an ocean where you're just holding on to a life jacket and you're just like treading water or whatever. The act of survival, like the longer you can stay up and just simply survive, the more chances you have of being discovered. And it's as simple as that. You don't even have to be outstanding. You just have to survive because so many people don't make it past a certain number of years. This is true of all forms of creation, including podcasting. I think you get to be in the top 10% of podcasts if you reach 10 episodes or something like that, because most people just give up before. And, and so a lot of what I do, what, I, what I've done is just looked for tangential ways in order to m- make money that, that don't directly, that don't compromise, I think, my philosophy. And so <clears throat> I think because I had a day job originally, being a hard rock mining engineer, when I decided to be an artist, I was pretty adamant that I didn't want art to be a job, not in the traditional sense of it, where I was beholden to work in order to earn money to sustain lifestyle. And I think the amount of money we earn creates the kind of life that we lead and vice versa. So the more money you earn, the more money you spend. And so I've always been really picky to not earn money doing something I didn't enjoy doing. And so I'd rather be poor than have more money doing something I didn't like. And, and, and that's informed so many of my career pivots. And so these days, I guess my financial model, the way I generate revenue was through a combination of consultancy. So I consult, I advise with different people and I'm able to generate a little bit more consistent revenue there. I speak, I do speaking engagements, even with the pandemic, I've had a number of different Zoom things for different corporations or conferences or otherwise, which generate a little bit of stable revenue. And then I have like my big flashy projects that I try to to invite into my life so that I can actually create the work, the kind of work in the world that I want to do. I am considering... a number of different financial experiments. I'm looking at the NFT space right now and I'm like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if I tried to uh, sell work on a really loose bonding curve where I sold my first three editions so low that I would actually be losing money every time I minted one. And and then I split the profit so that I only take a certain percentage. I give, let's say I take 20% and I give 20% to the community that helped me make it. And then I give 20% to a carbon offsetting initiative because of the amount of carbon footprint it it takes to create this thing. And then I I take the remaining 40% and I put it in a bank so that it can help finance future projects. Wouldn't that be a cool model? And so I I think there's always openness to, to new things. I think we often underestimate how much can be accomplished in 10 years 
And so I'm not too sure what the next 10 years will lead, but that's currently how I have my life structured. And yeah, that's fascinating. I, my mind was going, obviously, that I was going to ask you about NFTs. And if you've been thinking about it, I am just learning about them. I think like most of the rest of the world right now, I'm maybe a little further behind than the average clubhouser <laughs> who seems to be seems to be a hot topic of conversation around here. But also that I, I think about when I think about impact investing specific tie in my podcast theme here, I think about it as like the magic of that is that it not that it's going to replace the need for philanthropy, but that it allows us to save our philanthropic dollars for those causes and problems that where there's no ability to profit from the solution. And so if you can generate, if there's a way to generate an economic return from solving a problem, then we should use investment capital to do that so that we can save the, the philanthropic capital. And it feels like your work is rife with kind of opportunity for you know a profit because it is people are compelled by it. They're interested in it. Their views, they're, it's obviously valuable to, you've had corporations who've commissioned you to do this work on their behalf. And so I don't know exactly what that looks like, but it does feel like there's like there's a real opportunity. And even if it's not for the purpose of in, in, enriching uh, you personally, it, it could allow you, more, you to generate more capital for the causes that you- I think the financial model in art, the art world is lacking in that we were talking about the importance of process, but everyone thinks about art as an output and, and, and they think about the output without focusing on the out. And so very much when you hire a photographer, you're hiring them to create like a widget, like a photograph or a video just to create a video. And it doesn't really matter how that video performs or what it does and what it's accomplished and whether or not it's made a difference. Like all those aren't, aren't measurable and they aren't quantified in the financial models. And this is true of everything. And I, I feel like when we are a, when we're able and ready to move into a space where we can focus on the value of the process, which I, I think we're slowly starting to talk a little bit more about, that's when things may become a little bit more interesting for someone like me. I think that something like artist residencies are ripe to be completely redesigned, where it's less about, oh, we're going to bring an artist here to paint the walls and it's going to be inspirational and it's going to be great, but rather, oh, we, we need to have more creative divergent perspectives in the room. And so we want to have people who think differently to pull people out of their everyday day-to-day -day routine in order to engage in conversations and disruptive conversations on how we can tell better narratives uh, that are more in line with our mission. When we start having deeper conversations like that, then I think individuals like me will have more spaces in which to thrive. But that's just a little bit of wistful thinking. But on your note of Im impact investing, and I, I think this is something that personally, I would love to find ways for it to be less exclusionary because it, it, for, for someone like me who cares about making a difference in the world, I, it, it means that I'm spending all my time creating art because I'm not very good at managing money. So I want to find a way to throw the money that I'm earning to someone who knows what to do with it and who can do that in alignment with my values. And I think this whole, the work that you're doing in making sure that people can uh, responsibly invest whatever it is that they have and place it in spaces that are in alignment with their values. Like there, there is a tremendous need uh, for more people like this who who can bring that ability to the masses. And, and, and the minute we can democratize access to impact through where you save your money, which banks you use, and where your 401ks are stored, where your retirement funds are stored, and that becomes something that anyone can afford, or it can be automated where we can maybe design entire investment strategies around positive screens rather than just negative ones. I think that's when it becomes really interesting because the amount of capital that is sitting in people's bank accounts that are funding things that they don't actually believe in is huge because that's the way these institutional systems are designed. And so I, I've been trying to get my financial advisor to, to start placing money in, in, in different spaces that are more 
uh, socially conscious, but it's, it's an uphill battle because he doesn't know because most of his clients aren't asking for it yet. <laughs> and so that, that means people like me who are worrying about other things don't necessarily have the, the time and place to think about these things. So I think it's important for you to keep doing what you're doing. I think it's super important. Thank you. That's very, that's very nice of you to say. I agree with everything you've just said. And the, that's, that problem is exactly what I encountered day after day, week after week with folks coming who speak to me about this. I've been an advisor before in the traditional industry and I, I see the, I, I know what those, what financial advisors are experiencing and it's, they're just the knowledge level. I do a lot of presentations as well at conferences for advisors and the, the knowledge level of that space is very low. And so it makes them feel very inadequate to, in that subject area. And so they, a lot of them choose to bury their head in the sand to try to address it. So I, I and I agree. One of the things that's just an interesting tie in, and I'd love to just invite anyone who wants to join the conversation at this point to raise your hand. I'd love to have you participate. But to tie together the thought from we had earlier around the impact measurement, this idea that we're trying to get more and more precise about what exact impact we're having and just how, I think, insufficient our means of, of measuring and real impact and truly capturing it all and accurately is so insufficient still. But the process of going through that exercise is valuable nonetheless. And the same is true with our just our personal investments. And so a lot of the things people say to me is, hey, it's so hard to know what, what to invest in because you'll think, hey, Tesla is a good investment because it's solar-powered cars is good for the environment. But then you'll hear about maybe the unhealthy labor practices and how hard pe- people are being overworked in the environment there from a social perspective. And, oh, but so people get hung up on this. And it's true, it's complicated. And the answers to these questions often aren't easy, but the process of thinking about it, engaging in it and making changes um, to your portfolio, even if they ultimately are misguided or you end up changing them later, is still like a valuable part of the, the equation and it gets you thinking in the right manner. And the same thing when we're talking about measuring impact. And I think people just don't, I think we need to stop making, it can be used as a kind of an excuse not to get started. And so I love that. I love the way that you've handled your career, which is to just go and just do, and I'm going to figure it out as I go. And I'm going to forgive myself if I don't have it all figured out right away. And I make mistakes along the way, or you've, I've heard you talk about your story before and you've had work that you've done that you never published because you, it was, you felt like it missed the mark. And I, I just love that you've, you take that approach and that you're forgiving of yourself and don't let that stop you from, from continuing. Yeah. I, <laughs> I was going to say, okay, I can sound wise and I can say, yeah, it's important just to force to focus on progress over perfection. And that would be like the wise way to talk about it. And then I could just also say, at the end of the day, I'm just a really impulsive kid and um, I'm slightly <laughs> immature. And so <laughs> I just constantly embark on projects that are way too big for me to handle. And once in a while, they actually work out. And the interesting thing about that strategy is that at the end of the day, most people don't remember your weakest projects. Like when people like go on my website and they go on to browse and look at like images, they're not going to remember the ones that didn't resonate with them, the ones that were more mediocre than the others. And some of them don't even make it up there. And so I think we have to continuously, it's important to try and experiment. And I feel like this trope is, is just so overused, but like you only, you don't really learn. You don't learn if you don't try. And sometimes it's really hard to feel the urge to try something. I, I can totally acknowledge that and see how that would be frustrating and have <laughs> actually just gone through it 
especially during this time of COVID where you're like, oh, I'm trapped in a world where my superpower is gathering people to create art installations that helps to gather more people in a world where no one wants anyone to gather anywhere and wondering what do I do with myself? What, what can I do when there's clearly so much work to be done in the world, but what I am great at right now isn't right. And, and I started a lot of projects that went nowhere over COVID and, and sometimes really felt like I was uh, running a marathon in a rocking chair, meaning I was trying to go very far <laughs> without the skills to get there and putting in a lot of time, energy, and effort to, to make zero progress. And I think that's just part of the part of the, the process. There's just no other way to, to do it, I think. I think looking back on your life, there's you, you get the chance to retell your story however it is you want to remember it. And invariably, <laughs> you forget all those moments of, of uncertainty because suddenly everything makes sense. What is that saying by Steve Jobs that life only makes sense when you connect the dots backwards? Mm-hmm. I think that's very true. Yeah. Yeah, I think hundred percent had many dots that I've only ever connected looking uh, looking backwards, and it's why I think it's I'm a big fan of people who try and experience different things and and are willing to have those experiments and fail and just keep going. It's really great. I'm going to invite it again if anybody wants to join. There's no pressure to the conversation. Please raise your hand. I do want to ask you before I forget and before we wrap up here, if nobody does want to come join the conversation. So you made a call to action there, or maybe it wasn't intentional, but I'd like to make it an intentional one. So you're preparing for this Montreal installation. Do you, where can people go? Are you actually actively looking for volunteers now? And are you coordinating? Like where can people go if they want to get involved? Oh, thanks for that. Um, they can head over to Von Wong in Montreal, which is a face. I guess that's the easiest way, or they can just reach out by DMs. I know Valerie, who's in the audience, is going to be dragged out as a volunteer <laughs> to be a part of this project. But, but yeah, if, if you're interested, just reach out. You can also email me, hi at vonwong.com, or just you know, go to vonwong.com and send me a message there. There's, a, there's always need for extra hands to do something. And I have no idea what this project is going to look like, but that's often been the sign. My, my best projects were projects that should have never success, never been successful on paper, but they somehow managed to pull through. So I'm hoping this is going to be another one of those and not one that fails. We'll see. Only time will tell. Yeah. Okay. That's great. I was going to ask what people are doing, but you, you mm-hmm. don't have the kind of logistics figured out yet. So you're just gathering interest from people who are willing to, and then you're going to figure out what you need people to do and then assign roles. Is that kind of the logistics of how that works? Yeah. The most helpful people oftentimes manifest themselves. So they'll, they'll be the ones that follow really closely or they'll take the opportunity to reach out and they'll be like, hey, I saw you're, you're going to be doing something. Like, what can I do extra to help? Do you need help doing this or that? Or I saw you're looking for access to, I don't know, a landfill. I might know someone or can I make a call for you? And so the people who take the initiative are the ones who upgrade themselves, I think, to more important roles. And the ones that don't have as much time or who are less engaged end up doing whatever is necessary on the day of needing help. And it's not that one role is less important than the other, all roles. But I think people self-select into the roles that, they, that they're best served in, both for themselves and, and for me and for the cause. That's awesome. All right. That's great. Listen, I'm going to link to to a lot of the stuff in the show notes for my podcast, but I really appreciate you taking the time to to tell your story again. I know you've given it a lot, but it every time I think you reach somebody new with it, I think it is powerful. And I hope that's not lost on you. And, and I hope you feel that because it's, I've been personally just really inspired by, by your work and in awe of what you do. I think it's, I really think it's amazing. That's not a platitude. Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you like my, my work. I think we have a guest who Raise his hand. 
Oh, great. Andrew, you can unmute yourself. There was just some ruffling, so I muted you for a second. Uh, okay. Hey, Andrew. How's I'm good, and you? I'm good. Welcome. You're in Montreal, I hear. Yeah. I was born and raised in Montreal, but the Laurentian now, so. Very cool. Was there a comment or question that you had for this conversation? One can I say because a little bit time. Oh, we lost you. That. Yeah. Andrew, you're breaking up really? quite a bit. I'm just wondering if you can get so, your signals weak. All right. This is, it was not meant to be for this time, Anjo, but feel free to shoot a question or comment to either David or myself through DMs and we'll be happy to answer it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, we, can't, we can't hear you. Sorry. Ah, okay. <laughs> sorry, Anjo. Thanks for, for coming up. Yeah, hopefully we'll connect okay, after. Sure. It was just a comment. Oh, okay. Is maybe it next? No, maybe it's, let's try one more time because it sounded like it got a little better there. Actually, like I said, it was just a comment. What can I say is, Art is always a, a way to make an impact, but we never know how we can make an impact to the people we know, the people we met. And when you have a message, a real message, you really consciousness. And when it's art, you can always make an impact to the people. And it's not just in here, in the cities, it can be in the world or anytime, any year, every moment. So that's what I want to say. Very good. I, yeah, I agree. You don't even need art to make an impact. You just need to be, you, you don't even need to be an artist. You just need to be a human being and you don't even. Yeah, we all are an, an artist. Well, uh, what I want to say, because when you, you cook uh, a meal is, is an art. When uh, you trying to teach something is an art too. We, we all are an artist, but we have multi, many forms to express ourselves. So that's what I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I find it always interesting, this whole we are all artists inside conversation because you don't have the same problem. You don't have the same conversation when you're talking about scientists and you don't have the same question when you're talking about athletes. We are all athletes because we all run, but that's not true. We're all athletes. We're all scientists because we can all think critically. We can all ask questions. For some reason, it's only arts that gets generalized to everything. And I think in a sense, there's a difference between creating art and being an artist. And I think while, while we all have the capacity to be artistic and we have all have the capacity to express ourselves artistically, art isn't inherent or free in everything that we do. In this, and, and I think there's a, I, I don't think you're wrong, but I think there's a certain aspect of it that needs to be earned. And that in that intention of earning that art is what distinguishes between art that actually moves conversations forward and moves people and art that is created and, and just created for the sake of it. And maybe that's just because I see myself, ultimately the art that I create is more designed than it is artistic. I don't create for myself. I don't create because I believe in the need of creating. I don't think what I do needs to exist in the world and I don't feel compelled to do it. I create it because I'm trying to solve a problem, but that's my personal opinion on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm agreed too. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. As somebody who decidedly feels not <laughs> like an artist, my creativity, I, I know there are very, all sorts of forms of creativity. My artistic creativity is, I would self-describe as being very low and having a, not a 
kind of a mind uh, and a talent for for that. And I know that there's, I have art in me and I have the ability to produce it, but I'm not, I would never describe myself as a, as an artist. So anyway, all of that, that resonates with me. Okay. Well, listen, if, if there's anybody, nobody else who wants to join, Ben, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you in other Clubhouse conversations and continuing, uh, continuing. And I really, I'm going to follow up with you on the Montreal installation as well. I'm going to, I've got two young daughters at home here in Toronto, but I'm going to do my best to get involved in any way that I can, whether that's being there in person or, or supporting in another way. Amazing. That sounds like a, a ton of fun. I'd yeah, I'll to, reach out to I'd you, I'd love man. to have you there. Hey, actually, we have Andreas awesome. here, who, who was Great. a volunteer on one of my projects. Oh, cool. <laughs> Hello. I was curious what you guys thought about those projects that plant trees for like search engines that do that. There's financial institutions that do that for every transaction you do. They'll deduct Ecosia, a small right? amount. How successful are those programs? Ecosia, yeah, I think Ecosia is one of the one of the platforms, and there's an equivalent for the oceans. They work, as far as I know. They're basically just taking ad revenue and redirecting it, and they're powered mostly by Bing. So similar to DuckGo or any one of these other platforms, they're just powered by a different search engine that has the ability to put advertising on on their different platforms. So from a purely mechanical perspective, I think that they do exactly what they're supposed to, which is take ad dollars and convert that and put that into somewhere else. So yeah, if that is something that is important to you, I think definitely use it. Yeah, I don't have anything in addition to that. I haven't spent any meaningful time doing any due diligence on those platforms. But yeah, that at a high level, that concept is credible. And I'm sure there's dollars being directed to those uh, those causes. Yeah, I've changed my search engines to to non-Googles and then I just switch back to Google if there's something that I really need to find that I can't seem to find and that seems to work totally fine. Bill Gates was on it not too long on Clubhouse oh, yeah. and they, they asked him if, if, if what his search engine was and uh, he said with a straight face, Bing, and everybody sort of collectively... I saw that. That was great. Yeah. Like, Doubted Bing. him, but... Seriously. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny. Cool. Thanks Alrighty. again. And Thank we'll you, see you around in, in room soon. All right. I'll catch you around. Thank okay. you for this. Cheers, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.